Hello and welcome to the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vitter, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I'm joined by my co-host and editor-in-chief, Shali Men, as we dive into a side of data science you might not usually think of, beauty and fashion. To understand this glamorous side of our field, we've brought in Dr. Heather Levitas, an MIT graduate and fellowship-trained plastic surgeon in advanced cosmetic surgery, and Mimi Hugh, the founder of And Her, building customizable bras using AI, eco-friendly fibers, and automated production technology. With an incredible insight into the world of fashion and beauty, let's find out the cutting-edge techniques these incredible women are using to magnify their fields. Thank you both for being here. You know, this question is really to both of you. Heather, I'll start with you, but but I'd love Nini for you to answer as well. Because Nini, you know, you said in your article that data is now really been brought into the sort of mainstream creative world. And you know, the AI and data are now there. And data has affected every industry, but this is not what I would first think of as how data is going to affect the beauty or the fashion industry. So, you know, to start with you, Heather, as a plastic surgeon, how is it that you see data science affecting really the industry of beauty? So that's a great question. There's not a lot of published literature on the use of artificial intelligence in plastic surgery in terms of an academic um, standpoint, there's only about 10 to 15 published papers in our literature, and a lot of them are surrounding identification of things like melanoma um, in dermatologic patients, just sort of looking at pattern recognition of lesions. There's some literature on looking at pre- and post-surgical outcomes in terms of complications for different procedures we do, the status of various reconstructive procedures like free flaps for microvascular reconstruction. So right now it's very academic. There has been some industry interest, like some of the medical device companies and medical product companies, like some of the filler companies, for example, at looking at the use of AI for the consumer, the plastic surgery consumer. And one of the companies is working on an app where patients can actually take a photograph of themselves and say, I want to know what I would look like with one cc or one syringe of filler in my cheeks or in my lips or in my tear troughs, which is the under eye bags, and kind of get a sense of what they would look like. Now, how accurate that is and what kind of data they're using to create these post-procedure images, I'm not sure. But I think that's sort of where we're headed. And I think there's a lot of room for the use of AI in our field. That's super interesting that we're kind of like at the cusp of what plastic surgery is going to be using. Um, Nini, what about you in the fashion industry? So, um, you know, I see a lot of AI that's implemented in the tools. I use a lot of Adobe products you know, Adobe Photoshop, Illustrators, and they have a lot of imaging AI that's built in. So if I wanted to take out, you know, change the background on something, it tells me and it auto crops for me, you know, similar to when you're using Instagram to do any kind of photo taking or photo cropping that it learns a certain rules that, you know, where to put the focus of the photo. Um, and a lot of these are sort of like hidden in the back, but if you pay attention to it, it is there and it is in a lot of different um, apps and tools that we use to create things. So Nini, I understand that you have a new company that is helping women having personalized bra fittings. How does the data work there? 
So we collect our own data. So we use a web browser app. And so for people to take pictures, we use the photos to train and to estimate measurements. These measurements connect to the patterns that we build on these automated machines um, to produce the bras. Um, what we wanted to do is take the agile product development that's in the tech world, really shrink our production and product development cycles. So we'll take the customer's data, make a garment for them, test it on their body, and make changes if it needs to be. And we're hoping that through this process, we'll have a larger amount of data. We can service a lot of women with different body shapes and customize for them to reduce a lot of waste. Because when you customize, you're foregoing the mass production. You are reducing waste by less garments on the shelf, less inventories. Everybody's body is unique, and we're hoping to create this process that we recognize each body instead of having them fit themselves into the mass mass production sizing scales. Heather, that brings me back to sort of what you said. You know, you work in a field that is so artistic, whether it's someone's face or someone's breasts that you're constructing, you know, that's, it's really an artistic field as a surgeon. So you mentioned this idea of an app that tells you what you'll look like if you put in one cc of filler, or you put in some Botox or whatever. Does that mean that in some ways, data is like taking away the artistic aspect of being a plastic surgeon. You know, it's not like, Ooh, let me like, you know, I think I should add one CC or 0.5 CCs there. An app tells you as the surgeon, you should add one CC there, 0.75 CCs there because Liberty's, you know, left cheek is higher than her right cheek. And it, does it take out sort of the artistry and which may not be a bad thing. You know, maybe it's a good thing to make it more scientific. I don't know. Or is it a bad thing? Cause it's taking away that artistry? Um, great point. I think there are pros and cons, just like anything in life. Um, I think the purpose of the development of some of these predictive apps of what you may or may not look like after surgery is to give the patient an idea of what the surgery or the procedure might achieve, which is nice to know before you go spending tens of thousands of dollars on, on something that you don't know if you're going to like what the result is. A lot of surgeons are actually moving away from that um, is what I found recently. The reason being is, let's say you're a patient and you're coming in for a rhinoplasty and your surgeon shows you, this is what I can achieve by taking down the bump on your nose or, or whatever it is. And, and in the case of AI, potentially showing them like a normative set of data model using different ideal measurements of what the perfect nose on their face may look like. And then you do the procedure and it's not done by a machine. It's done by a surgeon. That's a real living person. And that surgeon inflicts even subconsciously their ideal what beauty is onto the, the procedure that they're performing. And then the patient comes back and says, hey, I don't like what you did. It doesn't look like the picture you showed me. This isn't fair. I want my money back. I'm not happy or whatever it may be. So I think there are some disadvantage to creating this ideal sense of what the ideal um, result can look like when really it's not a machine that's performing the procedure. It's a person. So I think it's there are pros and cons like anything. And I think as long as you explain that to patients, it's it's okay. In my practice, I don't use a lot of predictive technologies because I just find that um, I think my own personal um, aesthetic eye does just a fine job. I wanted to uh, follow up on a question which probably is a little bit more kind of philosophical, but I think it's an important one. Um, you know, this whole AI and the big data or data science has really encouraged everything to be more personalized, right? We heard the personalized medicine, heard the personalized education, personalized uh, news, which probably is pretty bad because you just only listen to the news that, that you like to listen to. But what you are doing in a way is, is more like pushing like personalized beauty or personalized, you know, closing. 
But on the other hand, is is it really being more personalized or less so? Because you know the whole fashion we have a term called tailor made. Traditionally, it was personalized. So in what sense all these uh, data, everything uh, are helping you get more personalized or actually get less so because you learn from other people's you know uh, data. So the traditional tailoring, you go to a tailor, they measure you, and then they fit you, and they take a while to to make that piece of clothing for you, whether it's a suit or a dress, but it takes time. And uh, so there are these,、um, you know, mobile fit tailor companies out there、um, that you know you use the process, you use the the app, you take pictures, and then they analyze, and then they send that data over to. Overseas to get a jeans made, you know, and then they'll deliver to you your door in two weeks, and that's personalization. And what we're trying to do is, from a sustainability perspective, for a piece of clothing to deliver to your door, a lot of times the cotton is grown somewhere, you know, whether it's in U.S. or in China or in Israel or in Australia, and then it gets sent to a second country to get spun. And maybe to a third country to get woven, and maybe to, you know it stays in that country to get cut and sewn and washed. Then it gets delivered to the U.S. warehouse, gets sold in the store, and then you know maybe delivered to your home or you know or you go to a store and buy it. So there is a lot of process, a lot of the waste, a lot of transportation, a lot of energy that goes into all this production of one piece of garment. And、um, and the value a lot of times is generated just because it's cheaper labor elsewhere. So you can get a twenty dollar jean from Costco.、Mm. So the way that we want to do the customization is we also want to reduce that waste, that energy,、um, and also we want to do the due diligence on where that fiber is coming from. So we know is the best fiber, is the most sustainable fiber, and we also want to think about the afterlife. After you're done with that garment,、mm. how does it, you know, how does it get digested in the the world system? You know, a lot of times, you know, fashion is actually the second largest polluting industry. It's polluting along the way from the dyeing process to the spinning process to, you know, lots of waste. You know, a lot of synthetic fabrics and synthetic garments, they take twenty to hundred years to decompose. Whether in this country or you send it elsewhere, it takes twenty to hundred years to decompose. A yoga bra, you know, a synthetic panty. So what we're trying to do is to think of a, about a garment's life cycle in a holistic point of view, so we can, you know, not just fit your body. We wanted to customize it so you feel good, but then also the afterlife. How do we mend it? How do we extend the the life of that garment? And if by the end of it, you, you know, we're done with it. How do we digest it back into the environment so it's not harmful and it will decompose quickly? I have to say that's, so, fasc- that's fascinating. I actually haven't thought. I don't think、it. I have answered your question, though. No, no, no that's fine. That's, uh, so, is that personalization or is it mass? But we wanted to customize, and we wanted to. Yeah, I think it is. It is like tailoring, but hopefully with technology、mm-hmm. and with less time and also less pollution. Speaking of tailor-made,、um, little-known fact: surgeons started off as tradesmen, and a lot of them were tailors.、Oh. So I、oh. like to I like to think、really? think of us as yeah, I like to think of us as sort of the last tradesmen that you know, big tech and AI and robotics haven't really touched. So I hope that、um, we can use AI to kind of augment if. 
play mm-hmm. on words a little bit there, uh, what we do. Um, but I hope that it uh, doesn't actually replace at any point what we do, because not everyone's perception of beauty is standard. And I think the role of the surgeon is to listen to the patient and what um, concerns them and what they think is beautiful and how they want to appear and what's going to change them on the inside as well as the outside. And I don't know that a machine will ever be able to uh, ever be able to be capable of accurately and perfectly reflecting that. So my hope is that we can use some of these AI uh, technologies, predictive technologies to to guide our decision making, but that they won't ever completely replace it because I like being a tailor. <laughs> I think that's such a lovely way to think about it, that like a person, I never thought about it like that, that a machine can't understand what your perception is of, of beauty. It can just understand what it thinks is beautiful and it couldn't really tailor to that. I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. but. It does make me think, you know, what, what do you see, Heather, as an end Nini for the fashion industry? What do, you, what do you all see as sort of the future of AI and technology with applications in the beauty and the fashion field? Like, what do you see as the, the future possibilities? There has been some published literature in our field on looking at the use of predictive technologies and AI in terms of facial recognition with transgender patients. And there is one study that's been published using a normative set of 10,000 faces Um, And in the preoperative photographs, the um, reviewers of the pictures, both AI and human, were able to identify if someone was male or female between 98 and 100% of the time. Preoperatively, the transgender patient, only 53% of the time. Then when the patient went through facial feminization, which is surgeries to make the transgender male to female patient look more feminine, the AI predictive technology was able to identify them as a female 98% of the time. So something wow. like that, something like that, where the patient doesn't necessarily come in asking to look a certain way, more beautiful, more symmetric, or whatever. Um, they just want to look more masculine or feminine. That is an, an application of uh, facial recognition AI that I think would be excellent, and is we're probably moving in that direction. Just because some of those surgeries involve cuts of the bone. For example, making a jaw smaller or larger, making the forehead larger or smaller, cheekbones larger or smaller, depending on which way you're transitioning. And a lot of those things can be done with uh, CAT scans, 3D CAT scans. And then based on those 3D CAT scans, we actually make custom plates that help those bones stay in place after they're moved. So an application like that um, may be great for AI. Well, that's, you know, I mean, that's some of the research that Heather and I have done together, which is you take this huge normative set of faces, you split it into male and female. So you know what, you know, sort of an average, and we don't just use one average, right? We do sort of a confidence interval of what an average male looks like, what an average female looks like. And if you bring in a male or female who's trying to transition to whatever the opposite is, you sort of project their face into this confidence ellipsoid, if you will, to say, what do we need to do to their face to make them look more feminine or more masculine? Um, and a lot of times it's, it's you know, because it's a little bit, it's a little bit from the jaw, a little bit from the brow, a little bit from the nose. But the question is like, what percentage for that individual's face is making them look more masculine or more feminine because especially if people don't have if insurance isn't covering it and people need to pick one surgery to do it's like which which one of these surgeries your brow or your jaw or your nose or whatever is going to do the most for you in terms of turning you more feminine or more masculine so there's enormous data sets that go in behind that that work and statistical methodology that heather's talking about but you know i mean 
we could Heather and I probably could talk about the face all day. Um, what about what about the fashion industry, Nini? So in terms of fashion, in terms of, you know, like uh, arts and design and creatives, I just think it's more of a tool to sort of help you and extend your ability to do some of the things that you did, you know, because creativity and what you want to communicate, those are your own. And then these are just, you know, some of the new instruments to help you get where you wanted to go. And same thing, you know, with our product, you know, at the end of the day, it's about the bra and then the AI and the data and the sensors and the automations. Those are in the background to help us give you a better fitting bra. This is a really a fascinating conversation, but and, and I couldn't help but wonder that, you know, we might have convinced some audience say, hey, I want to get into this uh, fashion, the beauty industry. I'm a data scientist. Now, the question then I have for you and also for Liberty, since you're working in this area as well, is like, what are the skills do they need? Are there particular skill sets or particular you know, things they need to know that will uh, help them to get into this uh, area to, to help you all? I think the biggest problem, at least in plastic surgery, is the collection of data. Um, we're really great at taking photos, but putting them into a national database of any kind, it's basically like herding cats. Um, pretty much trying to get, get trying to get surgeons to do anything on a national level is very difficult, um, especially when a lot of us, the aesthetic surgeons, are in private practice. We're not part of a big hospital. So our photos and, and data are stored on you know local servers. They're not stored on a cloud or the internet. So I think data scientists probably just need to recognize that the actual collection of data is probably the biggest hurdle, but that if someone could accomplish that, which I think is probably more of an issue than just in plastic surgery, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, that they probably have a lot to work with. And for me, I feel, you know, it's like getting any into any kind of new type of fields or projects, uh, you need a diverse um, team you know, team of diverse experiences. I'm working with a data scientist that I met from HBAF, Harvard Business Analytics program that I took. And I'm the domain expert in fashion and bid in this garment. In the collaboration, we come up with a product, um, a digital product and the physical product. Um, so I think having a dialogue, having a conversation, having domain experts in all the different fields. If you are doing an AI dermatology project, you know, work with the dermatologist, work with the makeup artist, you know, work with uh, customers who are using those type of products to get feedback, and then work with data scientists to get where you want it to go. So we always wrap up with our magic wand question. Um, and I have one for both of you. I can already tell I'm going to get so much flack for these questions, but I really want to know the answers. So I'm going to ask them anyway. So I have one for each of you. So Heather, I'll start with you. Um, everyone comes in to the plastic surgeon and always goes, I want to look younger, right? That's the thing. But when you're 17, you don't want to look younger. So my question is, is if you could wave your magic wand, right? And a patient could be any age, like when they come in and they say, I want to be younger. It's not they're saying I want to be 12 years old, but like, what is the perfect age for your face? Is it exactly how it should be? It doesn't need Botox. It doesn't need fillers. It's like, what age is it perfect that you could rewind the clock to? So I think most patients 
for example, I do quite a few facelifts. Um, when they come in for their facelift consult, they're usually between the age of 50 and 70. And I'm hoping more for the 50 than the 70. 70 is a little bit more of a challenge. I can, t- I can do it, but I'm hoping more for the 50 to 55-year-old. Don't I- worry. Sign me up. 50, <laughs> my 50th birthday. I'm coming in. And I, I always ask for a photograph of what they look like when they were happy with their appearance when, when they were younger. I never ask for a photo at a certain age because I just I kind of want to know what they think how old they were when they look their best. And I would say nine times out of 10, it's in that 30 to 35 range. People usually think that, you know, teenagers, 20 year olds, that's sort of the standard of beauty nowadays. It's not. Most women really just want to look how they look. Usually it's before or shortly thereafter they had their first child. Yeah. So 30 to 35, I would say is what most women are kind of looking to rewind the clock to. Well, that actually makes me feel good. Now I should feel better. I, I was like really upset about my age. And now I'm like, oh, maybe I should just like really enjoy how old I am right now. Yeah, because all, I'm going to want to be this. It's all downhill from here, Lepreti. It's all downhill. Oh, God, Heather, thank you. You know, you know, sorry, I have to jump in. I have to jump in here. Heather, is that, is that just only for women or this for men as well, like the 30 to 35? You know, with men, I think it's a little bit older. And sadly, men age better. It's like wine. It's not fair. Some of them come in and are 60 or 70 and look great. And I'm like, why are you here? Better news but for Shelly. Yeah, hear that. Such an <laughs> it's so unfair. But yeah, usually men are more, more satisfied with kind of how they looked in their late 30s, early 40s, I would say, is more average for men. So Nini, that brings me to my question for you. Finding the right bra is a nightmare. Like it is an actual nightmare for women. I think it's one of like the, of all the pieces of clothing, I hate it the most because it's so difficult. What is the size that you would be where you could go into any store and every bra would fit? You know, that you try to like, what is, is that exist where it's like, here's the perfect size where you could go, walk into any store and things would fit? I have to say it's not your fault. <laughs> it's the industry's fault because we have so many different brands and they have their ideal. They build towards their ideal. The Calvin Klein ideal is not the same as a Warco ideal. It's not the same as a Victoria ideal or an Airy ideal. You know, they have their customers. They have their fit model. So normally when you when you build anything in fashion is you have a fit model who you think your the average customer looks like. They come in, you fit the clothes on them, and you grade smaller or larger based on this one fit model. So it's a miracle that fits anybody. <laughs> and that's why it's very difficult to go from brand and brand and brand and try to keep a consistency. The thing is also, you know, I've seen a lot of these fit uh, apps out there that they're trying to sell to brands, you know, for multi-brands and say, okay, if I am this size, then AI tells me which items will fit me. But it's there's not enough data on these products because let's say for a pair of jeans, it might have 2% elastane, but it might have a 20% stretchability or a 10% stretchability. And that's not in the data set. You know, we don't have enough data points for the AI to really do this. So it's really hard to be 100% accurate. And there is no standardization of sizing across all of the different brands. You just have to try it. You just have to try it. I need your bra. <laughs> yeah, That's or to get it customized. I need, I need to go to your bra. Yeah, just have it made. So, so since this is a, a, a magical wand question, I want to follow up like, Nini, if you can wave the magical wand, what would you do to change the situation? Well, I- <laughs> you're changing it. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting. I'm trying. I'm just, we just started, you know, so we're not perfect yet. And I think we hope that eventually we will be able to, you know, be such a, a tool that's just in the background. The current way of harvesting that data, it's not as user-friendly. You know, you have to prop up your camera or your phone in a certain way, and then you have to take pictures and then send it in, you know. Uh, eventually, there will be a better interface for people to get their data captured that will be fun and less invasive and uh, and get your products made you know close to what you want well thank you to both of you as you always you know talking i was keep thinking that you know we think you know data science are beautiful fashionable but we did not really know how much they can do themselves for the for the beauty and the fashion and it, so this has been really a fascinating conversation although i have to say that there's one topic on my mind that I hope there will be another episode is how can we help men to grow hair? Uh, I think that is the one that AI should help. And, and uh, you know, I, I think once the AI can do that, I'm going to create a new Harvard review called the Harvard AI review because that goes nicely with hair as an acronym. But until then, thank you to both of you for the fascinating and the beautiful conversation. Thank you. Thank you.